Welcome to the Start Here podcast for web development. I'm Keith Monahan, And I'm Dane Miller. And we're here to show you how to build a career in web development. You can find us online at starthere.fm. Hey, Keith. How's your week? Good. How was yours? Mine was okay. I have a, a new client and some other projects going on, so it's been a, a bit a bit on the busy side. How about you? Yeah. Well, you know, this last this last while I haven't had a new website to to work on to build and I've been I've been working with a lot of little projects like you know updating content and minor changes to stuff fixing websites and things and so it it feels a little less productive and so it's kind of a little frustrating actually you know maybe the like the creativity part is just so fulfilling that this is kind of a letdown from that I under, I know how it is. I mean, I th- I think this is one of those parts of the job, you know, that we signed up for, where you just have to bite the bullet and deal with it. Because it is true that like when you're making little modifications to tons of already existing sites and applications, it doesn't feel as creatively fulfilling as doing one from start to finish. And it, when you get a job in web development, you commonly are making modifications to already live uh, sites, sites that are already in production. Maybe you're doing some technical support. You're doing things that aren't as creatively fulfilling as perhaps you would have when you were a freelancer or just learning. And mm-hmm. that is one of the really interesting parts of getting a job in web development. Yeah. I, you know, I, I just realized part of it could be that I am, I'm kind of living in somebody else's world when I'm editing their website, you know, if it's something I haven't built. And, yeah, you know, when I'm building a website, like that's kind of my place, you know, I'm, I'm building that and I'm, that's my headspace. This is why I, I love open source because it, it, as developers, we will get so ego wrapped around our code that, <laughs> that oftentimes, even I do it too, like where, you know, I've been doing this for like three years and still when I'm working on a new Ruby on Rails project for client, um, I don't want anybody else to get involved because I think I know how to do it the best way, mm. the, the most efficient perhaps, and the most optimized for this specific client. Um, maybe not like the best way quote, you know, and I just don't want other people to get involved. Uh, but sometimes it's necessary, but this is why I love open source and I love promoting open source to new developers because it gets them out of that mind state, right? Mm-hmm. So it gets them modifying other people's code. It gets other people modifying their code. And there is like an ego depletion as soon as the, the first day that somebody gives you a code review on, on your jo- like first web development job, when the, when the manager gives you a code review yeah. and he's like, Oh, change this, you know, you know, I don't like when you do single line if statements, basically your whole ego is just like depleted <laughs> and you just like want to attack him. But, you know, you have to get used to that. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, just experiencing a different part of the job and um, and it's fun. It, I mean, it's definitely better than what I was doing. Well, today we're going to talk about CSS, um, but we wanted to mention that from episode two and from the lesson from Shay how that we had you go through last episode um, you should be familiar with just kind of some of the common html elements and with building the structure of html some of those concepts um, and hyperlinks and some other things as well um, so keep that in mind and continue learning from Shay how yep and so what is css so stepping back a minute 
we did want to give you an overview of CSS as a whole before we dive into some of the things that we struggle with in CSS. And that's equally important as well. But first of all, we want to sort of step back and, and tell you in a broad view what it is. So it stands for Cascading Style Sheets. And it does exactly that. It applies styles to the page. So as we discussed in episode one, HTML will apply all the structure to the page, but CSS will apply all the color, all the font styles, all the widths and heights and properties and different, all the little different um, UI aesthetics that you see, all that's done via CSS. Whether it's inline or actually in a CSS file, that doesn't matter. It's all done via CSS is, is the basic point of that. Um, and then there's some specific things about CSS that you should probably know before we dive in any deeper. And that is that CSS is read from the top to the bottom in browsers, mm -hmm. and each selector has a different weighting. So you, we'll go into that specific one later in an advanced CSS episode. So you're but, talking um, about the, the specificity of, of the selectors. Exactly. Yeah, exactly, which okay, yeah. we don't, we'll definitely go into that later, but you should be familiar with the fact that selectors simply have a specificity. That's all you need to know for now. Um, and CSS is also used to manipulate content. So it doesn't just do aesthetic things. It can actually manipulate the content itself, right? So it can mm -hmm. uh, add text, it can remove text, um, and it can change text and content as well. Um, and then a lot of the times what's cool about CSS is there are default open source packages, modules, code snippets, and frameworks that you can apply to your project to get up and running much quicker because the browsers all have default styles. So Chrome will look different than Safari, will look different than Internet Explorer. If you just put some HTML into all those three different browsers, each one will look a little bit different. For instance, if you would put a button HTML element in each one of those different browsers, they'll all look just a little bit different. And that's because each browser's rendering engine and the way that they do their, their stuff all is just different. You know, they have different uh, thoughts on how that should work and such, but they all abide by the same CSS spec. So that's the specification document, similar to what we talked about in the first episode for mm -hmm. HTML5. Um, yeah. But... But a lot of these frameworks uh, provide a great uh, bootstrap way for you to get started. So you don't really have to worry about all those uh, browser-specific styles because you can include what's called a reset. So often if you just Google reset CSS, Eric Myers is a really famous one. They will give you a little code snippet that you can put at the beginning of your CSS, at the beginning of your HTML and wherever you're including it. And that will literally reset all those browser defaults to a baseline so that mm -hmm. then you can work on cross-browser support uh, in a much more responsible way. Um, and then some other things that you could use are actual frameworks. So you could use things like Foundation, Bootstrap, UI Kit, et cetera, that actually give you little CSS helper classes. They give you some default button styles. They give you some nice default aesthetics that you can use and apply throughout your project. Um, and that, that's actually something that as a, a web developer, I've been doing this for about three years and I use Bootstrap pretty much religiously on every single project I start. It's the first thing that I use. Mm -hmm. I know Keith, you, you've used foundation. Is it, you know, I've played with foundation a little bit. Um, and then I've also played with UI kit, which I really, really liked. Yeah. Yeah. The point is that, um, there are some differences in, in, in the different browsers and how they're rendered and you don't have to start from scratch by any means you know there are some very intelligent people that um are in this space and they've created 
um, some great resources. And so whether you just want to start with a clean slate and just you know build your own uh, structure and all your own user interface elements and stuff from scratch, you could start with like a reset.css. If you don't want to have to worry so much about the the UI elements, um, or if you just want a, you know, a good baseline to start from, then one of those CSS frameworks like you know Bootstrap Foundation or UIKit um, are a great place to start. Right, and and this is also important to mention because we'll in a minute here we'll be talking about some things we struggled with like floats and display properties. So it's good to mention that a lot of these frameworks will include grids. So grids can be really complicated. I mean, it's a lot of math. Sometimes it's it's a little bit of a complicated type of math too because you'll have grids that are inside of other grids and then you'll have different complexities of grids. Mm-hmm. So it, it can really grow in any sort of... Because a lot of websites are different, right? So there's there's probably an infinite variety of grids available online. If you, if you Google for CSS grids, you'll find a lot of great learning material actually. And implementing a grid yourself is, is a great way to see how much CSS you know, <laughs> uh, which maybe we'll give that to you as a project later on. But it's it's good to have that structure. Yeah, exactly. And that that's exactly why we wanted to talk about this next thing. We we struggled with the structure and we struggled with these grids and applying all this all these little properties that can totally break your grids and everything. Mm-hmm. So, um Keith, why don't you tell us a little bit about the display property or like what it is that you've struggled mm-hmm. with in regards to that? Yeah, so with the, the display property there's basically two primary uh, values that's block and inline and and that refers to how an html element behaves in relation to other elements around it and so every html element uh, it has a default behavior a, a default display property it's either block or inline and some of the block elements are are your divs and your your headers, uh, you know, footers, articles, those kinds of things, and they have a line break before and after. Whereas an inline element, and those can be uh, your anchor tags, uh, your spans, or a strong uh, a strong tag. Those are are literally in line with your text. And the frustrating thing is if you try and style. I guess this is kind of where I'm coming, you know, what I was frustrated with is if you try and style an inline um, element the same way you style a block element, it just doesn't work for specific in specific cases. So the inline elements, they inherit the height from from the line height. So if you have an anchor tag inside of a paragraph, the anchor tag will be the height, the line height of that paragraph. And you can even apply a, a height um, or even a width to an anchor tag, but it will not it will not work. Now you could apply left and right margin or padding, and and those will work. Those will work inside of your inside of your paragraph tag, but top and bottom margin or padding they don't work either. And so it's good to understand that, and we will cover that in much more depth uh, later on as well. But that's mm-hmm. something to think about. Pay attention. Um, later on as you get in and you start learning about the display property, that is something that you should should focus on and learn. Dean, what is, what, what is something that you kind of worked worked on and had to, had to figure out? One of the 
things that I struggled with a lot is the structure of the page, and I still struggle with it. A lot of some front-end developers are just whizzes at the structure, and it's because they completely understand the CSS Mm -hmm. box model. Mm-hmm. So the box model in its simplest terms, which it's it can be a little bit more advanced, but in its simplest terms, it just means that every single element in web development, HTML specifically, is a box. So it comes as a box. If you ever see an element that's actually a circle, that's because somebody's manipulated the box to be a circle or it's an image. And that, that's just sort of the standard paradigm that was set forth by the mm-hmm. HTML spec whenever it was made in the 90s, I guess. So we have to position these boxes around on the page in order to make up these really cool and neat web designs that we want. Um, And as the trend for web design is getting more and more out of the box, we have to find more creative ways to maneuver these boxes to do what we want. So Mm -hmm. one of the areas that I've actually found I struggle in is with floats. So floats are a common way to actually manipulate these boxes to make them go to one side of the page or the other or one side of a parent element or the other. And to not get too in the weeds, basically a float is akin or similar to thinking about percentages. So if you want to float something to the left and it's at 50% of the page and then you float something to the right, that's a really good way to visualize it. You'll have a page that's cut in half vertically and you can have some things on the left and some things on the right. So that's a really good way to just visualize what I'm talking about. And oftentimes we'll use floats in web development to move things pretty much anywhere we want, right? I mean, we can only Mm -hmm. really technically move them left and right, but given a outer wrapper element, we can, uh, we can actually move those anywhere Mm -hmm. because the outer wrapper element can have, uh, absolute or relative positions or margin and border, which is the margin and border are also part of the the box model as is padding. Um, so, so all of that together, including the responsive design and the, the problems with floats that you get into, because if you have a parent element that's full of floats and that's all it has, then the parent element doesn't have a height. Mm. And that can be difficult to, unless there's a background color applied, that can be hard to understand. Yeah. You can't see that the parent element doesn't have height and it can, it can just totally mess up the layout. I've definitely struggled with that as well. Exactly. And one little trick I found for dealing with this is to apply a, and this sounds weird, but it's a fun trick and it'll help you. It's apply a border of one pixel that's black to every element on your page. Hmm. Or or at least if you're working in a certain section of the page and you're like, wow, these elements are really tough and I am just not getting this to work like I want it to, apply a one pixel black border to all of those elements. And what you'll do is you'll see that you'll be like, oh, okay, wow, the outer wrapper has no height because it's smushed. The floats aren't behaving appropriately. You'll just be able to visualize the box model. And whenever you can visualize the box model, you can visualize what the CSS thinks you're trying to do. Mm -hmm. And then you can compensate. Yeah, that's a really good idea. I like that. I might use yeah. that. And oftentimes people will use the web inspector to do that as well, right? Like which we talked about in the first episode. Mm-hmm. Right. But you can typically only highlight, I guess it's easy to highlight just one element at a time with the inspector. And so you, applying right. a border is a really good idea. It just gives you, yeah. it helps you see that. So yeah, don't be afraid of using those kinds of things to, you know, just play with it and try to understand, you know, how things are interacting, um, right? Yeah. On your page. Yeah. Definitely. So let's see here. What, what was there something else? Yeah. I mean, I could talk about one other thing that, that was, um, 
interesting. I, I mean, it may, this isn't something that I struggled with so much, but it's something that you should definitely be aware of. In web development, there's units of measurement, just like in pretty much any other field. And the units of measurement in web development you most commonly will see are pixels and percentages. So you'll you'll pretty much see those everywhere. You'll see people using percents for widths and heights and all kinds of stuff like that. And you'll see people using pixels as well and also for fonts. So the only other one that you'll typically sometimes see is M's and that's spelled E-M. And basically what that means is one M is equal to whatever font size is applied to that div or element at the time. Then that can get much more complicated. And I, I do believe we're going to go into detail mm-hmm. on that in our advanced CSS episode. Yeah. But you don't really need to know any more detail on M's specifically. Just know that they exist and as well know that points exist, but points are only used when you're actually doing CSS and HTML that's going to be printed. Uh-huh. So if there's no web component at all, it's just going to be printed. Then you can use points because points relate to actual inches like on a ruler. But uh, most often you'll see pixels because yeah. it's the most exact. And and so talking about units of measurement, you know, we live in a world where there are, so, you know, so many different types of browsers and devices that can view the Internet. And it used to be that you could build a website with a fixed width of 960 pixels or whatever, and that yeah. covered pretty much everything. But because there's so many different devices now, you know, the stand, kind of the standard now is to use more percentage-based widths and heights and things. Um, mm-hmm. So that your website can be responsive, so it can it can respond to the width of the device, and so you know, I guess as far as units of measurement are concerned, we prefer using percentages. I think that's great, but also people will ask, why do they need to use percentages if there are media queries? Right. Mm. So people will confuse that because they'll think after reading about media queries, which is a little bit of an advanced CSS concept that. If we can use media queries to scale the website up and down, why do we need to use percents? Why can't we use pixels? And the the common way that I like to tell people to think about that is, what if you could use percents and media queries? That just means that as your website scales down, it's going to look very, very natural. So when you see a website that's actually scaling down and everything is flowing together as it goes, it's probably using a combination of a lot of media queries and percentages. Mm-hmm. And that, that's a that's a little trick that that they will often use. Yeah, and so when you're not so when you're using a fixed width with media queries, you're you're designing for breakpoints. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're, you'll be like scaling the site down, and it'll be like chunk 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 or you know. yeah yeah and and that used to work as well because we used to just have fewer sizes you know small medium mm-hmm. large mobile tablet desktop and yeah. you could kind of just work within those sizes but since then there's just been so many new browsers and and different devices and so that's that's kind of the preferred ways to use percentages and and responsive and the mini queries yeah it's great yeah mm-hmm. um Another thing that maybe you should tell us about is specificity. I know we're going to have the advanced CSS Mm -hmm. lesson, and I know it's kind of crazy, but why don't you just give us like an overview of what it's about? Yeah, so with your CSS selectors, each of your selectors has a set number of points. And there's a way to calculate that. And I'm not going to go in that today because it is just a little bit complicated. But this is something that I struggled with because CSS cascades 
And so I may have had a style at the top of my page, and later down on the page I maybe wanted to overwrite that style for a specific element. And that I will only be able to do that if the specificity is the same or greater. If there's if it's the same amount of points as as the selector mentioned above or greater. And not understanding how that's calculated, it'll set you back. And you may be frustrated with like, well why isn't this, you know, why aren't I able to style this anchor tag inside of a specific div, you know, how I want to, you know, and it's maybe it's because the specificity, you know, the the points, the selector isn't specific enough. It doesn't have enough points to outweigh the the style above it. And so while CSS, it does cascade down, there is this other element to think about, and that is the points allotted to each of the each of the selectors. Yep. I think that's a tough concept, but uh, I feel like that was a great overview. Yeah. And so those are kind of some of the things that you should be looking at. You know, like uh, pay attention to specificity, to the floats, to the display property, you know, block first inline, units of measurement, Try to go with the percentage-based stuff and maybe the EMs for font size so that it works well on multiple devices. That's something we have to think about now. Yep. Any other tips or tricks, Dane, like might need to think about? Yeah, I had some best practices that I wanted to mention. One of them that I think that the mo- one of the most important ones, I think, is using hyphens to concatenate words inside uh, of your IDs or your classes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and oftentimes, you'll see people mixing this all up, right? So that everybody, everywhere you look, it's different and, and that is okay. But the problem is, is when you're working on a team or when you're trying to collaborate with other people, it's really nice to have the same consistent type of language. And you can think of syntax or or type of typing that's all like a certain type of of language because you're using a certain type of language to portray your ids and your classes right so you want to you want to be speaking a common language with other Mm -hmm. developers so that's why it's important to think of these little small things um this is why people get so upset about little tiny small font syntax type things as developers because it, it does matter in the end um so use hyphens to concatenate your words and you'll be on the on the positive side of that in in our opinion also you want to use the smallest possible selectors that you can so if you have a word that is very long try to reduce that word as much as you can so so try to keep your wording as short as you can but also you want to keep in mind that just as Keith mentioned a minute ago with specificity each of your selectors have a different weighting so using the smallest possible selectors will make it such that you don't run into an issue where you can't override another selector from mm-hmm. from another one right so like if you yeah. have a selector that's like 10 like 10 classes or something. Yeah, 10 classes. Then it's going to be very difficult to override that selector. So let's just keep it really simple and really small, right? Mm-hmm. Just use the smallest number of um, points in a selector that you can get in, you know, that you can. And we'll get into more of that later. Yeah, exactly. Um, and another thing is we want to style our CSS. We actually want to style, code style the CSS such that it's very readable and pleasing to the eye. This way, it's easier to scan your CSS file. And other developers, again, it's just common language. So the way you'll want to do that is in your CSS as you're writing it, after each property value combination, you want to put one line break. And then after each rule set, 
of CSS property value combinations, you want to put two line breaks. And that's very common pattern that you'll see throughout the industry. Um, sometimes you'll see people writing all of their CSS on one line and the brackets will just go around that. And that's very much an anti-pattern. So you don't want to do that. You want to stay away from doing that because it's it's difficult to read and, and sometimes can be difficult to understand as well if you have a lot of CSS that's interacting with one another. Mm-hmm. And another thing and this is more of a broader concept, but you want to try to use more CSS than you do HTML. So people will often, I found, and, and I believe Keith will agree on this, that people have often use HTML as a crutch because they don't mm-hmm. understand CSS as much as they should. Right. So they don't understand all that stuff that we just talked about that we struggle with. They don't understand a lot of that, and we struggle with it too, so we, we totally relate. But if they don't understand the display property or floats or the box model really well, then they will have trouble actually using as little HTML as possible, which that sounds counterintuitive. I know that sounds ironic, but it's true. And Keith, do you want to give us an example of of how that would be the case? Maybe just to to put some concrete examples out there. Yeah, definitely. So there's always multiple ways to do something. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Sometimes one isn't like better than the other, but in this case, when you're writing HTML, you want the HTML to have meaning, right? Semantic meaning. So if you're going to put a div in there, then the div should mean something. It should be, uh, you know, part of the structure. But you'll find that sometimes people add divs with inside of divs with inside of divs just for styling purposes. Yeah, exactly. And most of the time, if you know your CSS pretty well, you can achieve the same thing without all the extra HTML fluff. And so I guess a best practice would be to step back and think, you know, if you find yourself doing that, um, step back and just and just think, well, what's a good way to do this? Or what's what's a better way to do this? Can I achieve some of what I'm trying to do with all these divs using, using CSS? Right, exactly. So um, another thing that I like to think is, is this div part of the structural content of the page or is it absolutely necessary? And if the answer to either of those questions is maybe not, then I need to rethink it. Um, and it, let's let's also juxtaposition this, this conversation mm-hmm. here because we don't want people to go around using edge CSS properties and values mm-hmm. that aren't yet supported in the browser. As a web developer, you have this situation where you'll run into uh, technologies that aren't yet supported by browsers because the industry moves so fast. And this is a conversation that I I believe we'll touch on in almost every episode going forward Mm -hmm. because it it literally is that core to this industry. So as a result of that, you have to be aware of this as a web developer, and you have to be responsible with this because there's still customers and, and clients and users on these older browsers, and you have to use CSS and JavaScript and, and all that stuff that is going to work on all the browsers. So we aren't advocating that you just go crazy and like write the whole page with CSS, you know what I mean? We aren't advocating yeah. that, but... Um, we are advocating to use as little HTML as possible within reason. Yeah, there has to be a, a balance. And, yeah. and I mean, since we since we mentioned it, and so we're talking. This is a uh, an issue of browser compatibility, right? Mm-hmm. There's certain certain CSS, I guess, certain elements of CSS three, you know, that aren't supported in older browsers, and you know, where's the cutoff, right? I mean, okay, so typically your your Chrome, Safari, and Firefox have been 
more quick to adopt the new standards than Internet Explorer. And so you'll find that Internet Explorer is kind of the laggard in, in the industry. And, you know, there are some people that, that think they need to support Internet Explorer version 6, which is, you know, way back in the day. And, you know, right now I think we're at uh, version 11, I think. Mm-hmm. And so how far back you go to support Internet Explorer, and that's that's kind of the question of compatibility, really. It's what version of Internet Explorer are you going to support? Um, that's a question about who your clients are. You know, yep. if you're working in the medical industry where your software might be used or your website might be used in a hospital, you know, a lot of those systems are still on XP, so they might have an older browser. Mm-hmm. Same with government, right? Yeah, exactly. So it depends on your on your client or your users, but in general, at least right now, I I try to support back to Internet Explorer 8, even though I'd rather not. I agree with that. I mean, I will go to support i8 and almost eh, if it's a if it's a real production app and it's not just a side project, I will definitely go to IE8. Mm-hmm. But if it's a side project or if I'm just playing around, obviously I'll 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 only support Chrome Edge, um, which isn't a best practice. That's just something that developers like to do to play around because Chrome usually comes out with some of these technologies before the other browsers. So as Keith said. A great thing to do if you're entering a new job as a web developer or to note down to do when you do enter that new job is to go ahead and get all the hard numbers on what your customers are using Mm -hmm. or what their customers are using. So you want the real numbers. You want access to the Google Analytics because it will show you. And a lot of the times people just perceive, they have a perception. So they'll say, oh, we think our customers are, 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 you know, our customers are on IE7. We have to support IE7. And then you'll look at the numbers and you'll see that like 5% of them are on IE7 and 95% of them are on like our Firefox or something. And it, it, it doesn't make any sense to support um, th- that 5% because it will take like mm-hmm. 90% of the effort. You know what I mean? There's like this 80-20 yeah. rule that happens there. Right. There has to be a legitimate reason for supporting, you know, considerably older browsers like, uh, you know, IE7 or IE6 because doing so just takes so much extra time. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Well, I think that kind of rounds out what we wanted to discuss about CSS. Um, yeah. As we mentioned, you know, there's a lot more to CSS than just these things, but pay attention to these specifically, and we think you will do well as you move forward. We have another resource for you today, and that is continuing to learn CSS with Shay Howe. It's going to be lesson three. Uh, he'll get into the cascade. He'll get into specificity, the selectors, using like multiple classes and, and, you know, multiple words and stuff in selectors. And then more things like colors and, and links and measurements and that kind of stuff. So dig in, continue to expand the Styles Conference website that he's building with you, and come back next time. Thanks for stopping by. You can reach me on Twitter at Keith Mon. It's K-E-I-T-H-M-O-N. And I'm on Twitter as Dane Miller, D-A-I-N-M-I-L-L-E-R. And please rate and review the podcast or share with other people if you know they're about to join the web development industry or are looking to change careers. Definitely give this this to them and, and see if they're interested. Yep. And we'd love to hear how you're doing. If you're just starting your journey towards web development, Or if you just have questions, you can go to the show page today on our website. That's starthere.fm slash webdev slash three. Thanks for joining us. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.